Good afternoon. Welcome to Madison Bookbeat, highlighting Madison and Wisconsin authors. I'm David Ahrens, your substitute host. Today, rather than talking about a or to a Wisconsin author, we're going to talk to an author who recently published a very important book focused on a subject from Wisconsin, Mildred Harnack, a UW graduate who went on to lead an anti-Nazi espionage ring in Berlin. Our guest today, Rebecca Donner, is the author of this new biography of Mildred Fish Harnack titled All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days, the true story of the American woman at the heart of the German resistance to Hitler. Rebecca Donner is also the author of the novel Sunset Terrace and Burnout, a graphic novel about eco-terrorism. Donna's third book is the New York Times bestseller, All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days. Ms. Donner is a member of the National Book Critics Circle and has taught writing at Wesleyan University, Columbia University, and Barnard College. Also, we just found out that Rebecca Donna has just been named as a Guggenheim Fellow, so congratulations. I should let our listeners know before I forget that Ms. Donner will be speaking in Madison this Wednesday at 4 p.m. at the Pyle Center, 702 Langdon Street, at 4 p.m. Her talk is part of the Mildred Fish Harnock Human Rights and Democracy Lecture Series. Rebecca Donna, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Madison Bookbeat and to learn more about the incredible story that you brought to life. David, it's an absolute pleasure uh, to be your guest. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. For our listeners who are not familiar with Mildred Harnock, uh, can you give an overview of her story? Uh, certainly. Um, well, Mildred Harnock uh, was my great, great aunt. Um, and she was an American graduate student from Milwaukee who became a leader of one of the largest underground resistance groups in Germany during Hitler's regime. Um, three generations separate us, uh, and um, she is an enigmatic, historically misunderstood woman who has intrigued me since I was a teenager when my grandmother pressed a bundle of Mildred's letters into my hands and urged me to tell her story. Wow. Uh, so you had, you've been, so you've been researching it um, uh, both intellectually and sort of emotionally for, since you've been a teenager. Absolutely. Yes. I, I mean, I knew right then uh, that I would undertake this uh, eventually. I knew I wanted to be a writer. Uh, and, and my grandmother knew this as well, which is, I think, why she, she gave me these letters, hoping that I would um, write about it um, and, and, and really write a big, bold book, uh, which the material really calls for. I also knew that I wanted to conduct extensive archival research. Uh, and so I... I wanted to get a few books under my, my belt, and I published uh, two books of fiction. And I was, in fact, uh, working on my third novel when I set it aside and felt this tremendous urgency to write this story um, about Mildred. I had been researching uh, sort of around the margins, you know, for almost a decade, but uh, in the run-up to the presidential election in um, 2016, I thought, you know, uh, I sensed that resistance was in the zeitgeist a little bit, and and I thought this is the time for people to know more about Mildred Harnock. And and it's true that people in uh, Wisconsin um, uh, 
have heard about her. I, when If I've traveled to other states, uh, I find that people really don't know about Mildred or haven't known about her. Um, when I travel to Wisconsin, there's a great deal of, of pride uh, about Mildred because she was a born and raised in Milwaukee. Um, and she's been honored with a, with a day and, and with various monuments and there's a school named after her and so forth. Uh, but still there, there's so much that uh, I knew remained to be told about her. And so when I conducted this research, I went to uh, uh, multiple archives in Germany. I also uh, went to the National Archives in London. I researched the National Archives um, and Library of Congress here in the US and across the United States, I went to various institutions and I worked with a Moscow-based historian. Um, Mildred's story, and I can say more about this in detail, um, David, but uh, it, she also, uh, she became, she was in the resistance and then she did become a spy for the allies. So I conducted a great deal of espionage research as well. Mm -hmm. And the way that I ultimately conceived of this book was as a fusion of a biography, espionage thriller, and scholarly detective story. Right. You, you know, speaking of the 2016 election, not to get too bogged down in it, but you sort of uh, flipped the switch. Um, yeah. <clears throat> you wrote that in 1933, shortly after the election of Hitler as the chancellor of Germany, quote, they're convinced that Germans will revolt against this lunatic politician. It's just a matter of time, unquote. So when you, when you wrote that, uh, did you start to see parallels to the U.S. in the last decade? I certainly did. And I, and I do want to just hasten to add, uh, he wasn't elected. He was appointed. Mm. Uh, he was appointed by that. At that point, right. Germany was still That's a parliamentary true. democracy. Mm. Uh, 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 politicians um, uh, ran against one another to um, participate in the Reichstag, the, the uh, Germany's parliament. And, and there was a president who uh, actually Hitler had run against and lost. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, and, and yet, yes, he, he was appointed as chancellor, and it was that the conservative branch of, um, of, of the, the, the cabinet really did believe that they could control him. And I, and I do devote um, a bit of time to that in my book. Yes. I discuss yeah. uh, his cabinet um, and, and some of the things that, that those politicians had said privately in their diaries, uh, as well as amongst one another. And these are the kinds of things that I... Uh, turned up in my archival research. But yes, they believed they could control him. And even Germans did. Uh, Mildred Harnock, her husband, Arvid Harnock, and others in their resistance group, which at that time was just a nascent kind of uh, resistance group, a scrappy group of, of political activists and, and her students and friends and friends of friends. They really, in those early years of, of, the, uh, uh, of the regime, thought that Hitler could be controlled and and that Germans would result would uh, revolt and it was just a matter of time yes but by 1935 they realized they had to change their strategy of resistance mm -hmm. so uh, so you're following that <clears throat> uh, sort of year by year a month <clears throat> excuse me month by month um, this whole devolution of the German Republic people are being arrested um, certainly all the other political parties are are outlawed. It's within really six months to a year, we start to see a Nazi state. And so, so here you have this new brutality. And how did Mildred and Arvid 
struggle with with their options that were before them, how to respond to this, because uh, I guess it's, it's worth noting that both of them were uh, PhDs from UW and and from German universities. So these were uh, people whose backgrounds really were as intellectuals. So how did they struggle with, now what should we do? Well, yes. Uh, when, well, when Mildred moved to Germany, it was 1929. Uh, she enrolled in a PhD program in Germany, uh, and and Arvid was just finishing up his his PhD. They met at the University of Wisconsin um, in Madison as graduate students, um, and and then in uh, you know Mildred was was enrolled in this PhD program. Arvid got his uh, finished his dissertation, got his PhD. Mildred was teaching at the University of Berlin. Uh, and, and during this time in, in 1930, the Nazi party uh, only had 18% of the vote in a Reichstag election. Two years before, it had 3%, less than 3%. So she saw, she sort of bore witness to um, this uh, rapid increase in, in the popularity of the Nazi party. Two years later, on July 31st, 1932, the Nazi party had 37% of the vote in their Reichstag election. And for the first time, it was the largest party in their Reichstag. And during this time, Mildred, uh, uh, yes, she was. She had already started to, she and her husband, Arvid, had already started to assemble um, this uh, friends and friends of friends and students, as I mentioned before. Uh, and uh, you know, they met to discuss what should we do. Um, it was dangerous during that time, after Hitler um, became chancellor, um, to be affiliated with uh, any kind of a, a left-wing party in particular, um, any party that was antithetical to the, the, the Nazi party. Um, and, and very quickly, uh, all parties became outlawed, um, except for the Nazi party. But in those early days of the Nazi regime, he, tar- he targeted political opponents first. Mm-hmm. So just two months after he was appointed chancellor in March 1933, there were approximately 20,000 political prisoners. And by the end of the year, over 200,000 communist social democrats and trade unionists were sent off to concentration camps. Mildred and Arvid knew that that was a danger that they faced. And indeed, there were members of their group who were arrested. Um, they were caught with leaflets uh, that, that they were uh, distributing, that basically... Yeah, your, um, your book mentions yeah. that there were thousands of people who were arrested and presumably imprisoned for possession of a leaflet. Yeah, that's right. It was it was um, it was an offense uh, that could uh, get you a year in a concentration camp, and indeed that did happen to several members of the group. Um, so they knew that that was a risk uh, that they faced. And uh, by the time the war began, um, it, uh, the, the punishment was even harsher. It was death. Um, you could be executed, and indeed. Um, quite a number of people were executed for the possession of pamphlets, including members of the Weisse Rosa, the White Rose Resistance Group, which I write about a bit in my book, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to back up, you, you asked what, you know, how they, uh, what was it like to be them, you know, in those early years of the regime. And and when I was going through Mildred's letters, it's very clear that uh, she, she wrote a lot of letters to her mother um, in Wisconsin, and her mother held on to them. Um, and uh, and again, those were the letters that, that I received from my grandmother. Mildred began to write in a kind of code mm-hmm. um, because she knew that uh, censors were, were 
reading mail. And so she couldn't risk uh, saying anything political. And in fact, she wrote to her, her mother uh, early on, just, just uh, within a month of, uh, or after, a month after Hitler became chancellor, she wrote to her mother, please don't tell anyone that we are political people. We are simply uh, interested in ideas and we're just two academics minding our own business. Uh, and, and so, yeah. um, and, and, you know, uh, but, but again, um, in those early days, they still felt that there was a chance that, that Germans would revolt and, and eject this, um, who they saw was a buffoon, mm-hmm. um, this, this, this political upstart. Um, and, uh, but, but very quickly, um, you know, the persecution of Jews began in April, 1933 on April, First, there was a national boycott of all Jewish businesses. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, and that was, uh, a, you know, this was deeply appalling to Mildred. Um, she saw swastikas uh, proliferate, and that was also deeply appalling to her and to Arvid and others in their group. So they, so they, uh, uh, you know, they were committed to to trying to find uh, strategies for resistance. Um, but as it became more dangerous, and in 1935, it became clear that, that Hitler was not going away, um, they decided to change their strategy uh, and undermine the Nazi regime from within. Uh, they realized that leaflets were a poor weapon against a fascist dictator and, and again, <laughs> exposed them to arrest. Um, and so uh, they, they decided that they would lead a double life. Arvid got a job at the Ministry of Economics and posed as a loyal Nazi in order to gain access to top secret documents on Hitler's operational strategies and later military strategies, uh, which then he would give to Hitler's enemies, um, and who included um, Stalin. Uh, so he was passing this information to the Soviets. And then also uh, in 1939, uh, he and Mildred began to pass this information to the Americans as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Mildred made trips to Moscow um, and, yes, met, and, met, yeah. and met with um, Soviet secret agents to sort of be set up as um, well, or established. Well, I, I would say, yeah. Uh, yeah I, well, I write it. I um, sort of broadly speaking, yes, but 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 I, I want to also sort of uh, um, clarify that Arvid had a control officer. They assigned him one, and he was very adamant that he would not act as a spy, uh, that they, and he could not be controlled, and he would not be paid, and mm-hmm. and they could not tell him what to do, to the extent that that their purposes sort of aligned with his purposes as a member of this resistance group, then yes, he would, um, that he would uh, cooperate, but um, his his control officer uh, did bemoan the fact that Arvid was a very difficult man to control, uh, and and you know I uh, in my research I turned up these memos that um, that were enciphered and later um, deciphered. So this was uh, your you, this was your contact in Moscow who this this yes who, uh, <laughs> and, and this was the, one of the things that I that I uncovered yes and Great. and mm-hmm. and uh, but Mildred never. There is some evidence that she was given a code name, and and I, I write about this as well. And this was this was again um, my uh, research in in Soviet era uh, archives that turned this up. But a lot of that, a lot of those files are under lock and key. So it was uh, sort of a, a, a 
we don't we do not know for certain whether she had a control officer we do know that that arvid did and that he was given the code name balt and then later um corsican <laughs> and uh for um for a, a minute in the early 90s, those those um, espionage files opened up in Russia and then they, they slammed shut again. Um, so so again, this is why one of the reasons I sort of conceived of this book as a scholarly detective story, I knew that there were gaps in the story uh, that could not be filled. Also in, in the United States, um, you know, the um, a lot of these espionage files were classified and and it wasn't until the 1998 nazi war crimes um a disclosure act that that these documents started to become uh declassified and released and and this is a process that continues to this day uh, but i had to file a lot of freedom of information act requests to to request redaction you know, these big black splotches across right. their files mm-hmm. uh, to be removed and and i was still sent some that uh that had the redaction and and I sent an appeal and sometimes they were removed and sometimes they remained uh, redacted. And so, uh, you know, knowing that this is a story that has some of these, these gaps, um, uh, you know, I did, I did everything I could to fill those gaps in. And, and when I didn't, I also felt that it was important to honor those gaps. Um, I, I think, um, uh, and so when I tried to, you know, I, I, I never, I don't ever, sometimes people think because I wrote two works of fiction that, that I uh, sort of applied embroidery or sort of fictional elements and, and, or I conjectured uh, or I, you know, offered um, that somehow filled in the blanks in a fictional way. And, and that's um, uh, surely not true. Uh, yeah. that, that I followed a very strict set of, of rules and guidelines for myself uh, and, and, um, anything that is quoted in the book and that appears between quotation marks, uh, any fact that appears is is there because there is a uh, a primary source or document well, that substantiates it, and, and I have an extensive appendix in the back that, that you know for people who are curious um, and want to read more. Right, there's fifty um, pages of yeah. footnotes. Pardon me. <laughs> there's fifty pages of footnotes. It's a fifty pages. <laughs> you know, I actually heard from somebody uh, on on Twitter yesterday who wrote, um, "I was so upset um, when I, I when I reached the end of the book. I didn't real. She, she saw those fifty pages. She thought that she still had a bit to read. And yeah. when she read the last uh, page of the last chapter, she said she let out a, a big no because uh, <laughs> she didn't want it to be over. That's great. And then she said, then she ended up writing reading the fifty pages of, wow. of endnotes uh, because she wanted to read more and mm-hmm. she was interested. But this is this is far from a, a standard biography. The feeling is is very personal. Uh, yeah. As a reader, and much of the book, unlike of course most biographies, uh, it's in the present tense. Um, I mean, the example that I gave before that um, Mildred wrote, uh, they're convinced that Germans will will revolt. I mean, it's in the present tense. So it gives a feeling to, well, for myself as a reader of of being a ghost in the room uh, Uh, with them. but at the same time, again, as you say, this book is a history with real events, real people, 50 pages of footnotes, and so on. Uh, so why? So there's really two questions. Why did you make the choice of writing a hybrid of these two forms? And, and the second part is uh, I noted that the, the book has received 
just great reviews by novelists, but how, how has this been received by historians? So can we go to the first question first, which is why you chose to bring these two forms together of, of a fictional sense of being there and real-life people um, combined with 50 pages of footnotes. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, I felt when I embarked upon this uh, uh, project and, and I sent my proposal, my agent sent my proposal out to, to editors, uh, some editors, knowing that I had written two works of fiction, proposed that I write this as historical fiction. And I said, assuredly not. The power of this story is that it is true. And so there's no need for me to fictionalize anything. Uh, uh, in fact, it, it would diminish it. I, I, I believed that very strongly. And because I had a familial connection to my subject, I also felt that you know I have access to documents um, that no one else has seen, to photographs no one has seen uh, and, and have not been previously published. And so I had a lot of a lot to bring uh, to this story, as well as a great passion to tell it. Um, and as I started to research uh, th this, I, I went to the Gedenkstätte Deutsche Widerstand, which is the German Resistance Memorial Center in Berlin, and, and met with um, the, the head of the archive there, and, and, uh, and, 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 and they gave me access to uh, just a wealth of materials. Um, I, I, I was, the, you know, this book was taking shape and I thought, well, I knew that I didn't want to write a conventional cradle to grave biography that had already been uh, undertaken, actually. Um, Shireen Blair Brysack wrote uh, uh, Mildred Harnock's first biography um, published by Oxford University Press uh, over two decades ago. And so I thought, uh, you know, that's already been done. And so I want to uh, follow a different approach. Shortly after I decided that, I um, tracked down uh, Mildred's former 11-year-old courier, uh, Donald Heath Jr. Who let, let, why, why don't you talk yeah. about him a bit? This is an amazing yeah. part of the story that's, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's yeah. so, um, I mean, if you see it in a film, and I hope this does come around yeah. as a film sometime, um, you'd say, that's just crazy Hollywood stuff. So talk yeah. a little bit about Dawn. Certainly, certainly. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, and actually, I'll, I'll just circle back and very yeah. quickly answer your question yeah. about present tense, and then I'll, then I'll circle back to Don Heath. But when I, when, I was, uh, when, when I was interviewing him, I tracked him down. He was 89 years old. Uh, and I'll speak more about his role um, in the resistance and his relationship to Mildred in a moment. But uh, I was so entranced by his story, and his memory was so vivid of his boyhood in Berlin and of uh, basically uh, acting as a courier, um, uh, showing up at Mildred's apartment uh, twice a week. It's an 11-year-old yeah. courier. Right? An 11-year-old, <laughs> yes. He was the son uh, of a diplomat at the U.S. Embassy in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And he had worked out, his parents had worked out an arrangement with, with Mildred and Arvid uh, to help their group. And so their son visited Mildred twice a week between 1939 and 1941, ostensibly for tutoring sessions in English and American literature. And at the and, and indeed, she did tutor him, but at the end of these sessions, she would slip a piece of paper into his knapsack, which then he would take back to his parents. Um, his father would type up reports that then uh, would, would go to uh, Morgenthau at, in the Treasury Department. And uh, also, Morgenthau would share with his State Department colleagues, um, Cordell Hull and, 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 um, and, and others. And, and so I... Uh, and again, I can speak more specifically mm -hmm. about that, but just to your question, um, 
uh, you know, Donald told me about the routes he would take to Mildred's apartment and from Mildred's apartment, uh, this, the streets, the, the, the U-Bahn stops, the S-Bahn stops, and I retraced his steps, everything everything tracked. His father urged him to uh, make sure he wasn't being followed. Um, uh, he would check the reflections of, of windows on the streets to make sure that it, to just ascertain that no one was following mm-hmm. him. He would go up to the top of the American church and look down and see again if anybody was following him. And he was really at the center of his own John le Carré novel <laughs> um, as an 11 year old boy. Uh, and it was between the ages, I, I should clarify, of 11 and 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the paper, uh, you know, typically was just a, a time and a date where then the Harnocks would meet the Heaths outside of Berlin uh, at, at, in the Spreewald, for example, where they could uh, escape Gestapo surveillance and then exchange uh, intelligence verbally. Um, and so uh, after Don passed away, his family gave me access to 12 steamer trunks of documents, oh, that can, which was just an absolute <laughs> treasure. And, uh, and, and they contained, uh, you know, classified memos, uh, and, uh, photographs and his mother's diaries. Wow. And so I was able to corroborate so much of what he told me, um, with those diaries and, and date books and letters. And, and it was a tremendous, um, uh, discovery and it really opened up my book. So then I realized this book has to uh, encompass more than you know Mildred's narrative uh, trajectory. I need to incorporate a lot more of Don's story and Don Heath's family story into this book. And and this was around the time that I thought, uh, you know, I, I I envisioned him running through the streets of of Berlin, and I wanted readers to have that experience. So. Mm-hmm. so Looking at the Berlin in 1939 through a little boy's eyes, uh, and and again everything corroborated with uh, every newspaper headline, um, every uh, um, snippet that he hears on the radio. Everything is 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 factual. Uh, any letter that is written, you know, uh, and and so on. So, and and I and I one day I just started writing it in the present tense because I was envisioning it. And I, and I just, I, I wanted the reader to sort of almost feel as if they were, they had their feet, you know, mm-hmm. they were running alongside him in the streets of Berlin alongside this 11 year old boy. And then I thought, wait a second, I, I need to write the whole book in the present tense because right. suddenly it came alive in a way that, uh, that, you know, it really achieved my, my aim, which I had, uh, you know, Again, when I sat down to write this book, I thought, I want to approach this book in a different way. I don't want to write a conventional cradle-to-grave biography. I also don't want readers to feel that sense, that sort of um, sepia-toned, stock footage kind of feeling that we get from documentaries sometimes of that era, where the figures are so uh, distant from us. Uh, More recently, um, you, you see that there are there's footage now that's been colorized and so forth. So it, it does make it feel more alive and vibrant. Um, and, and that's closer to, to what I wanted to do with this book. I wanted readers to really experience these historical figures too, from, from Hitler to Goebbels to, to Himmler, um, uh, to Morgenthau and, and, and to members of the resistance and of course Mildred herself, to experience these people as real flesh and blood people and not just as sort of uh, cardboard 
cutouts from from a history book. And and so that's what brought me to uh, the decision to write this in the present tense. So when people say it, it the, the reading experience is novelistic. That's really what they're speaking of because they're not used to reading history in the present tense. Mm-hmm. How did uh, historians take it? Oh, well, I have a, I mean, if, if you look in the back of my book, a number of historians did blurb my book. Oh, um, uh-huh. uh, yeah, um, and beautiful blur- blurbs. David Clay Large, uh, who is a very eminent historian and has written about the um, the resistance and, and he's the author of, of the book Berlin, uh, wrote uh, just a, a, oh, a beautiful blurb. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Kai Bird, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning biographer, yes. mm-hmm. also uh, has written about this book. James Wood, who is uh, who is a esteemed literary right. critic, mm-hmm. has so so. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's an interesting question because I, I I I knew that I was taking an artistic risk in writing the book in the present tense. Predominantly, there are times when I flash back and flash forwards. You know, but I would say eighty five percent of the book is written in the present tense. But also, I knew that. Um, that, that uh, I, well, I decided to sprinkle throughout the book these archival documents so that readers would have the, the sort of, again, sort of walk alongside me as I conduct this scholarly detective story and track things down as I'm telling the story. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a figure in the story. I don't mean that. I just mean right. it sort of in, the, in a more sort of abstract sense. And so I show snippets of, of these espionage files. I show uh, a memo that Stalin wrote, uh, a very profane memo. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it's in a chapter called Stalin's Obscenity. Yeah. And um, and I can't utter, utter that obscenity on the radio, but if you're <laughs> curious, you can read the book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 uh, and, and so, and, and I, and I show little snippets of letters that Mildred wrote to her mother and, 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 uh, some of these, um, um, these, these enciphered messages that were sent to, to Moscow center. Um, so, and, and so in sort of sprinkling these documents throughout the book to again, make history come alive in the same way that I wanted history to come alive by writing the book in the present tense. I knew that maybe historians would balk at that. Conventional historians might say, "Well, that's not a way to write history." Yeah. But, but I've been pleasantly surprised. Good. Um, I, Good. I, I really have found that, um, uh, uh, much to my um, relief, and 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 uh, and uh, you know, I, um, I, I think, in, in some ways, um, those who have responded, historians and biographers, have welcomed another way of. Of approaching things, you know. Um, so as long as uh, as long and, as it's and footnoted, it makes the accessible in a way. Uh, I'm sorry, will we? I, I said as long as it's footnoted, they're okay. As long, yes, yeah, or endnoted. <laughs> well, that was another that was another decision I make. Do I write footnotes or endnotes? And yeah. and and so you know, we, we tend to think about footnotes at the bottom of mm-hmm. the page as a, as a more scholarly text, and and uh, and that uh, we see that in. Um, you know, conventional biographies, conventional histories. And it was my, again, I thought, I want readers to come to this. I want biographers and historians and people who uh, are, um, are readers of this, of this time period. Uh, I also don't want to alienate readers who are not those readers. Some, I want readers who, who yes, who have enjoy reading novels and have never read a biography or a work of nonfiction um, and, and everybody in between. And that's indeed what I found. Um, yeah. And so this is, you know, the readers who have written to me uh, range from people who have uh, never picked up a book about World War II. 
uh, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, um, people mm. who are uh, experts uh, and and um, either scholars or uh, a- amateur scholars who, who just mm-hmm. read voraciously uh, about World War II and the resistance um, and 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 they they write to me about you know how the book resonates for them so so and so so i write the the end notes is basically i made that yeah. choice end notes not footnotes the the title um talk about the title for a minute uh, all the frequent troubles of our days uh, yes that that's from i think it, you wrote that it's from a yeats poem is that right Oh no! It's from a it's from a, a Goethe poem actually. Goethe poem. Oh, okay. Yes, it's and that there's. I'm glad you brought this up, uh, David, because it's it's a very important moment in Mildred's life. It well, was, what was the resonance of that? Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. it, well, she um, first of all, Mildred and Arvid fell in love reading Goethe uh, and Whitman to each other, and and possibly Yeats as well. I mean that they that she Mildred was uh, studied um, literature and. Uh, Arvid's father was a Goethe scholar, mm-hmm. so they both oh. had a lot of poetry mm-hmm. in their minds and that they had memorized, and um, that was uh, sort of tripped off their tongues, and it was a part of their their romance, really. Um, and and then here, and they wrote to each other about this. This is again not conjecture. This is this is uh, based on primary source documents that I've uncovered. Uh, when Mildred uh, and Arvid were arrested along with uh, 118 men and women in their group in 1942, they were thrown in prison. Um, first at Gestapo headquarters, there was a basement prison. And then when that overflowed, the women were sent off to women's prisons and the men were sent off to men's prisons. Um, and Mildred was thrown into a solitary confinement and she was not permitted to write uh, to read, um, to, she could not have any visitors. Uh, as an American, she was treated differently. Um, Arvid was allowed to have uh, several family members visit him, including his brother, Falkarnock, who was a member of the White Rose Resistance Group. Um, and uh, and he did receive books, that, and he was actually working on a, a book. He was writing a book while he was in prison. Uh, that, that Unfortunately, that manuscript was lost. Um, and then there was a mass trial, uh, and it was really just um, a farce. Uh, um, they were condemned to death. Um, Arvid was condemned to, to hang. Um, some, and as were the men in, in the group, most of the men. The, Mildred at first received a six-year prison sentence, and then Hitler found out about it and overturned um, the decision. And so she, there was another trial and she was sentenced to death by guillotine. And so we're, we're getting to Goethe in just a second. And so just setting setting the stage for you. So there, the, the night before, um, or uh, several days before she was, was executed, somebody was able to smuggle in a book of Goethe poems to her. She was actually employed by um, by a publisher to to translate these um, poems, uh, she was under contract to do that. So, uh, a member of the family found the book in her apartment and got it smuggled in, um, and 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 then she and smuggled in a pencil stub. Uh, and the night before her execution, um, the uh, prison chaplain, Harald Polschau, who was secretly in the resistance, uh, visited her um, and saw her bent over this book of Goethe poems with this pencil stub in her hand, and she was scribbling in the margins of the book, and she was scribbling translations. And uh, and he 
smuggled the book out afterwards. Um, and this is the reason we have the book uh, to this day. And one of the lines, um, or one of the poems that she translated, the first line of that poem is, in all the frequent troubles of our days. And mm. so I mm. felt that this was a fitting title for it this book. It sounds so Irish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why you're thinking Yeats. <laughs> yes, it, it is. It's, and it's interesting, too, because, uh, you know, um, she wrote this in a, in a damp prison cell and and uh, with, a, with, a, with a pencil stub. And, and I spent a very long time looking at the word trouble and trying to, was this in all the frequent trouble? Or was this all the frequent troubles? Was that an S or was that not an S? And, um, and so, you know, scholars debate that. Yeah. But, Do you um, think there's another person, you think yeah. there's another person in the world who would spend the night before their execution translating Goethe poems. I mean, what an extraordinary I don't believe so, not person. to my knowledge. It, it, yeah. right, you know, it does tell us a lot about her state of mind, somebody who would choose to spend her time that way, that, to spend the last hours of her life translating poetry. Yeah, I mean, uh, this, is, this is part of, you know, this life experience of this remarkable person. I mean, uh, you describe in detail in the beginning how incredibly poor she was growing up. Um, yeah. I mean, barely able to eat at times right. and manages somehow to get through the Milwaukee public schools, gets a scholarship to UW, becomes an outstanding student and, you know, would be a prominent intellectual and then just sacrifices everything. One of the, I was rereading parts of it last night, and I saw the letter to her mother-in-law, asking if her mother-in-law could send them some potatoes. Oh yeah. To eat yeah. because they were only eating chestnuts. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's how they were. Very they, resonant detail. Isn't they it? were giving all their money away. Yeah. Um, and. Yeah. They become impoverished, and you see her at the end, the photographs of her, how she's just, you know, sort of wizened away um, yeah. in yeah. this state of poverty. It, it's just um, the level of, you know, getting into it and and fully committing herself, I'd say themselves, to this, this inc incredible and probably uh, a venture that they knew was doomed. Yeah. You know, um, but they, you know, they played it to the end. One one thing that, uh, another thing is that kind of a tragedy in a way, it, or it's that they had to remake themselves as Nazis. <laughs> and that was so, yeah. I imagine how hard that was for them. And, and, and in 1938, Mildred comes back to the United States, which I guess she assumes is going to be a last visit and um and her sister's comment on how she looks so stony and cold and they come to the conclusion that she's become a nazi yeah um that she's gone nazi yes. gone nazi yes. that was that was my great-grandmother's uh term for it 
Uh-huh. Uh, she said we, we we thought that she'd gone Nazi. Yeah, yeah. There was some the brittleness to her. She'd lost her sense of humor, uh, and and this was the. I mean, it's deeply ironic. And she said nothing uh, to give herself away. As right, right. A, and and here they thought that she was exactly who she was fighting. You know, they didn't know she was in the resistance. Uh, but they concluded, well, she must be Nazi um, because she was so secretive. Uh, she told her brother that she thought people were watching her. Uh, so her brother actually thought she might be a little crazy, um, paranoid. Yeah. And what they didn't understand was that she had spent, uh, uh, this was in 1937, she had spent eight years uh, in Germany, uh, most of which were uh, during the uh, fascist dictatorship, you know, between 1933 and 1937. Um, and and that changes a person. And, and particularly it changes a person when they're dedicating every single day to uh, resisting uh, the regime in, in large ways and small and uh, risking their lives and um, and can't tell anyone about it. She didn't want to tell, she couldn't tell her family because she thought, uh, if anybody found out, then um, then she would be arrested, executed, and and surely uh, Arvid would, and and others in the group. Mm-hmm. So she felt that she, it was you know she she couldn't breathe a word of of what she was doing. It, it was interesting. Her um, a college uh, a former college roommate um, threw a party for her and invited all their college friends, oh. mm-hmm. and. Um, and they also thought that she was strange and they gossiped about her later. And this, this comes up in, in post-war interviews. Uh, they too thought, oh, well, she must be Nazi. Um, and, uh, um, and, 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 I, and I wonder how lonely Mildred must have felt. Right. I mean, you, you engage in something like that and you sort of want the adulation and the recognition that you're doing this heroic um, act. Yeah. But instead, she has to absolutely deny that and engage in a role of the very people that she's trying to destroy. Yes, I mean, exactly. it really must do something to your head. Yeah, uh, certainly. It does uh, kind of uh, a real, it could bring on a real identity crisis. I mean, I, I really, I thought about what that must have been like. We'll never be able to know. Uh, we won't be able to get in our head. She did keep a diary, but she burned it shortly before she was arrested. Mm. So this is just something that I would kind of think about. And, and when I would take a break from, from writing and I would go for a run in the park, I would think, what must have that been like? Um, really, uh, the only person who I think was closest uh, to understanding that was Arvid. And, and, um, but they were also separated from one another for, for long stretches of time. Uh, and, 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 and again, the difference is that she was American. And so her own family was, you know, uh, on the other side of the Atlantic and, and, um, and, and, and her sister, my great grandmother was, mm-hmm. uh, uh, angry at her for, you know, as she was appalled that she would go back. And again, that seemed to, 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 uh, uh, prove that she must be Nazi if she wants to go back to Germany at this time. Um, and and no one in America really knew what was going on. Mildred knew more than her family did, but um, uh, really the experience, what it was like to live uh, in Germany was something that, that her family and her f- college friends could only guess at. And it really, based on what they'd read in the newspapers, which of course 
Coca-Cola, didn't tell them the full story at all. Uh, and, and yet, so she went back. And that's something that I, I find um, really remarkable. She could have stayed. Yeah. She could definitely have stayed. She had a U.S. passport. Uh, and she went back and she decided to risk her life, even once the war started, as she could have gone back, uh, Arvid, was worried for her uh, uh, safety and and bought her uh, a one-way ticket back um, on a steamership, and she had it in her purse when she was arrested. Right. Um, she kept it there. I mean, she he, he bought it for her in 1939, and it, it was, you could use it at any time. But um, if if there was a during war, it becomes more difficult, of course. But but uh, presumably, she could have um, used it and and gone back and saved herself, but she refused to. Let me say uh, before uh, we end our talk today, um, I want to remind listeners, of course, that this we're speaking today with uh, Rebecca Donner, who's the Guggenheim award-winning uh, author of All the Frequent Troubles of Our Lives, the true story of the American woman at the heart of the German resistance to Hitler. This has uh, been a New York Times bestseller, and uh, we're lucky that uh, Rebecca Donner will be in Madison this Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. at the Pile Center, 702 Langdon Street uh, at 4 p.m. Uh, any uh, closing words? Uh, one thing is the um, Harnack is recognized in Germany as a hero and martyr. Is Is that right? She is. There is also a, a school named after her there as well oh. in Berlin. And um, there's a monument there at the University of Gießen. Um, uh, but but um, uh, and yes, she is, is. There's a street named after her. Uh, but but again, she um, and, and we didn't really have uh, much time to go into this. But there are for, for decades, uh, there were uh, inaccuracies and and um, Errors that's kind of swirled around her, um, and and uh, and and so uh, you know, I I, I found uh, it, it incumbent upon me in 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 this book, all the frequent troubles of our days, to really set the record straight in in um, and clarify some um, facts and uh, correct some errors that that historians have made for decades mm -hmm. since they first began writing about this book, first in Germany and then um, in England and then in the United States. And so um, it keeps and, getting and, repeated and, just, and repeated. What's the, that? the mistakes get repeated and repeated well, as each repeat, yes, and, then, and then they kind of calcify as, as fact, these yep, errors. Right. And, and it's just one one thing I just want to clarify about this, you know, the group is commonly known as the um, in Germany as the Rote Kapelle, or in the United States as the Red Orchestra, and and this is a name that they never used uh, for each other. They'd never heard of the name Red Orchestra. Um, this was this was a name that was given to them by um, by the Abwehr, by by uh, German intelligence, um, and uh, Mildred. Uh, referred to the group as the circle. That was her nickname mm -hmm. for it. And this was, uh, you know, there were Jews and Catholics and atheists in this group. There were men and women, 40% were women. Um, and, uh, and, and over the course of eight years, the circle intersected with three other underground resistance groups, uh, uh, Tatkreis, Rittmeisterkreis, and Gegnerkreis. These are also resistance circles. And they formed an interlocking chain. And by 1940, there, there were approximately 60 people in the group 
and then it continued to recruit new members as the Second World War progressed. And in 1942, the Gestapo arrested 119 of them. Yeah. And very few survived. Uh, you know, again, the, the men were shot or hanged. The women were uh, decapitated by guillotine, including Mildred. Yeah. And and so I, I wanted to write this book in order to uh, make sure their stories were told. Do you, do you think uh, they weren't erased? Do you think there'll be a movie coming out of this? I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Who should play Mildred? Oh gosh, um, I I don't know. Oh. I, I have some. Uh, um, I have some thoughts swirling around. Yeah, I, it, yeah. It's interesting. You, the actress would have to be somebody uh, who could play college age as well as up to age 40, or at least maybe they would have two different actors doing that. But um, uh, there's a lot of interest, and yeah. I have a film agent, and oh, so good, it's good. fielding offers. Okay, so. that's how we'll get the word out. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure talking <laughs> to you. I've, I've read the book twice, and um, it's... Uh, uh, this came up, and uh, we're really happy to have you. And I'm sure some more listeners will be there Wednesday at the Pile Center to hear your lecture. Thanks very much again, Rebecca. Thank you, David. Mm -hmm. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye.